process of decommissioning Indian Point nuclear power plant is well underway. There's no immediate equal replacement for the impending loss of 1,000 megawatts of carbon-free power. However, plans are underway to expedite renewable development as upgrades in transmission to pipe into the state to meet its energy needs. Tucked into the 2021 New York State budget is Section 94C of the Accelerated Renewable Energy Growth and Community Benefit Act. The law overhauls the state's large-scale renewable siting process, increased renewable energy, and upgrades to transmission and distribution lines. These critical topics and more are going to be the focus of today's episode of the Energy Central Power Perspectives podcast. Before we get underway, allow me to introduce my colleague Matt Chester, who's based in Orlando, Florida, and serves as a community manager at Energy Central and producer of the Energy Central Power Perspective podcast. And I'm your host, Jason Price of West Monroe in the Energy and Utility Practice based in New York City. Joining us today is Noah Shaw, a partner and co-chair of the Renewable Energy Practice for Hodgson Russ LLP located in Albany, New York. Noah concentrates his practice on renewable energy, sustainable development, clean energy, clean technology, land use and economic development, and related matters. He provides a broad range of guidance and assistance with respect to the strategic, regulatory, financial, and policy matters that arise in clean technology and renewable energy markets. Prior to joining Hodgson Russ in September 2019, NOAA held the position of General Counsel and Secretary of the Board of Directors at the New York State Energy Research and Development Authority, NYSERDA. As General Counsel, he provided advice and counsel with respect to legal, policy, regulatory, and other matters relating to the state's renewable energy and energy efficiency initiatives. Noah was a senior member of New York State's energy team and responsible for shaping state energy policy. Noah Shaw, it is great to welcome you to the Energy Central Power Perspectives podcast. Well, thank you, Jason. It's a pleasure to be here and congratulations on the great run of podcasts that you've got going. It's a pleasure to listen. Appreciate that, Noah. Noah, the energy policy of New York is uniquely organized and structured differently than most other states. Before we dig into our main topic of the Accelerated Renewable Energy Growth and Community Benefit Act, can you give our audience a big picture on the energy policy landscape and its cast of characters in the New York State? I will happily do that, um, and I'll try to keep it (laughs) relatively simple. There are two main differentiators between how New York works and how a lot of other states work in the energy policy space. The first is that the Public Service Commission, based in Albany, and the public service law are very powerful. And most energy policy, including the 2016 Clean Energy Standard that was the kickoff for a broad and deep new procurement structure for renewable energy facilities, and also the zero emission credit ZEC program to support the nuclear fleet upstate, uh, was all done under the authority of the public service law. And so the public service commission itself Uh, has much broader authority to make policy than most other utility commissions in other states. The other differentiator in New York is that the Public Service Commission doesn't have jurisdiction over the entire state. In fact, Long Island, which is almost as big as the entire state of Massachusetts, is under the jurisdiction of the Long Island Power Authority, which issues its own tariffs and has its own policies. And so really, you've got two separate energy jurisdictions within New York State all within the purview of the governor. 
the governor appoints the board of directors of, of the Long Island Power Authority and appoints the Public Service Commission. But yet the lining up and the ensuring of consistency between those two jurisdictions is a constant challenge, usually successfully met, but nevertheless a challenge for the state. And it leads to interesting decision making sometimes. The other point that I would make is that the New York Power Authority, the state's public utility, uh, is a very powerful and large load-serving entity in the state, much larger than most other states' public utilities in terms of the overall proportion of the load of the state, and therefore can move forward with state policies in a way that is that is somewhat unique in many ways, in a kind of walk-the-walk kind of way. So those are the, the main differentiators here in New York. No, I think New York you always think of as being a bit ahead of the curve when it comes to clean energy and what it's able to do, but it sounds like it comes with some sort of unique challenges or stumbling blocks as well. Would you say overall this positioning makes New York more or less adept to clean energy policy and what can be done to optimize the strategy with regards to that setup? Well, some might say it's perfectly consistent with the way New York is in general. It's big and messy, but we do things fast and and in an ambitious way. Um, So, you know, I think that in some ways the power of the Public Service Commission has given the state the ability to move forward on important large policy matters more quickly uh, than a lot of other states where the authority to do things rests in the legislature. And as everybody knows, the legislature in in any state can be a difficult place to make policy in an efficient way, shall we say. Recently, obviously, with the Community Leadership and Climate Protection Act in 2019 here in New York, the legislature has gotten more and more involved in state policymaking in the, in the renewable energy space. But over the years, the Public Service Commission has really been driving that forward. The other large asset that New York has is my former employer, the New York State Energy Research and Development Authority is, you know, probably together with the California Clean Energy Commission, uh, one of the two largest, best resourced, and most effective renewable energy policy and incentive support mechanisms that any state has. NYSERDA administers an incredibly broad range of programs, everything from, you know, very technical energy efficiency technology, all the way through, you know, supporting like I said, offshore wind facilities and and moving things forward in a way that is really nation leading. So NYSERDA is is a large asset that most other states don't have. A lot of other states are depending upon their public utility commission staff to move these things forward or depending on utilities to run the procurements. In in New York, NYSERDA's placement at the center of all that allows a concerted and consistent policy and transactional system that I think is unique. Absolutely. And as a resident of New York State, NYSERDA puts the spotlight on energy, unlike most other states like you described. It's all done internally at the, at the state administrative level. Share with us what has and how has the focus of NYSERDA changed since you were there to today? That's a great question. When I arrived in the summer of 2014, Richard Kaufman, who I had actually worked with at the Department of Energy in Washington before that, had arrived only a little more than a year prior and was just starting what we called the REV initiative, the Renewing the Energy Vision program, which was meant to change the way utility business models worked so that they were incentivized and the market signals pushed them to create options for 
customer interaction with the resources and the efficiency programs that were available and to place distributed energy resources on their system to reduce peak, to clean the system, uh, and to make it less expensive. That program and the Green Bank uh, had just started, right? So over the course of the last five years, we've moved from that real that focus on the rev der build out and changing of the utility business models and that's still moving along but we have added on in new york state the very significant drivers that are going to get us to our climate goals in the build out of large scale renewable energy and resources in particular the clean energy standard from august of 2016 the offshore wind standard and also the extraordinary acceleration of community distributed generation, community solar in New York State that was spurred on by the transition, which took a little while to shake out, but was, I think, eventually effective, the transition from net metering to the value of distributed energy resources. Uh, and now we're through you know, the various different sort of credits and adders that ensure that those facilities are economic and are able to be built. So what I think the biggest transition that I see in my time has been from that, that focus on the utility business model, uh, which is still there, but was primary back in 2014 and 15, to now the focus is on getting projects built. Like what do we do to get projects built? Because the developers are there, they're coming from all over the world, frankly. Uh, every time I turn around, there's a new company coming from you know, Europe or Canada or some other state saying, how do I get involved with the New York state market? And clearing the path, you know, from a development point of view, whether it's tax issues or whether it's construction issues or whether it's permitting timelines and details and all of that, but clearing that path so that we can actually get the resources online to hit the goals of 70% renewable energy consumption in the state by 2030. Yep. And that's, that leads us to where we are today. So let's talk about where New York stands today in energy policy. And let's dig further into your published perspective paper that you wrote, basically looking at Section 94C. Tell us about the act and let's dig into that now. Sure. Section 94C of the executive law is the provision in the Accelerated Renewable Energy Growth and Community Benefit Act, which is a mouthful, from New York's 2020 budget bill. This is a whole new permitting regime that, in effect, dismantles the so-called Article 10 of the public service law permitting regime that had been in place for large generation facilities uh, previously. That is 25 megawatts of nameplate capacity and larger. That Article 10 system had been weighed down by slow processes. It required a number, a total of 240 days of process and waiting periods even before an application could be submitted. And all of that led to a pipeline of more than 50 projects in the Article 10Q that were not moving along fast enough in order to meet our goals, frankly, and that were creating a lot of disgruntlement, I think is a fair way to put it, on behalf of developers wondering if New York was actually a good place to do business. So the large changes, the headline changes, and there are a lot of changes from Article 10 to what we call Section 94C now, is that it moves the permitting office from the Department of Public Service and the Article 10 Citing Board under the Public Service Law over to a newly created office, the Office of Renewable Energy Citing, that will be at the Department of State, a totally separate agency. It puts a one-year deadline on the issuance of a permit from the time the application is deemed complete. So 
if proceedings are still going on or if conditions have not yet been agreed to at that year date under the law, the permit issues and the standard uh, regulations and conditions are in place to the extent that they've been issued for public comment at the time. It also offers an opt-in for projects with nameplate capacities down to 20 megawatts. So in other words, it, it opens the aperture for what kinds of projects can opt into this statewide permitting process down to those that are 20 megawatts and bigger. It also changes in an important way the question of how the permitting office views local laws. In Article 10, local laws could be deemed unduly burdensome and therefore not applied to the project if, if there was a determination of that undue burden based on the cost of the project to ratepayers statewide and technology feasibility of the facility. The new standard, the new measuring stick for, with respect to whether a, a local law will be deemed unduly burdensome has nothing to do with those two factors, but it's about uh, whether or not the project is consistent with the goals of the CLCPA, that is 70% renewable energy by 2030 and 100% clean by 2040, and the overall environmental benefit of the project. Certainly giving the renewable energy projects a better chance of sort of winning out on that question. There are more distinctions, but those are, I would say, the highlights. The only other thing I would note just before we move along, just from, a, from the point of view of efficiency, the Office of Renewable Energy Siting will be run by one executive director. There will be no siting board that has to comply with a lot of rules before it can even meet and that has a lot of people to prepare and to be involved. And that executive director can make all decisions, can hold all hearings, and can consider any questions that come before the entity. The idea there, obviously, is to ensure that these decisions can be made in an efficient way so that things aren't pending before a board that, for whatever reason, you know, might not be able to meet for a couple months at a time. No, just to clarify, this impacts all types of renewable, offshore and onshore, or is it just only onshore? So the state doesn't have jurisdiction over the siting of offshore resources. The state only has jurisdiction within three miles of shore. All of the offshore wind facilities are obviously significantly farther out than that. So they're in federal waters and the siting determinations are made at the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management in Washington. This law is with respect to large generation facilities that are in New York State, that is onshore for the most part. I suppose there might be something large built within three miles of, of the shore someday, but, but probably not in the near future. Fantastic. Thank you. So let's talk about transmission. So adding more transmission okay. lines is included in the act. This is a national problem and a classic example that all politics is local. No one wants these towers in their backyard. So how are we going to overcome the public pushback from rights of way and other changes to our transmission system? Well, that is a... That is a great question. I think it's important that people know that the bill that we've been talking about, the package of provisions that were passed in the budget on April 1st of 2020 here in New York, the 94C permitting office is really only one piece of it. There are four significant pieces. The other three are giving NYSERDA the authority to make build-ready sites, so to find difficult-to-develop sites and set them up from a permitting and interconnection and related matters so that they can be transferred to a developer for, for build out. The second is the requirement of the state power grid study. And I think that this item is actually on the agenda for the Public Service Commission at its meeting session tomorrow on May 14th. 
to kick off the process of looking at the entire grid in the state and trying to understand what improvements and, and build outs need to be made in order to get to 70% renewable energy by 2030. And then the last piece is a streamlining of what we call here in New York, the Article 7 process, which is the permitting process for large transmission facilities and speeding that up and including public involvement in that process in a more efficient way. So in terms of the, the NIMBY sort of suggestion that you make, I think there are a number of possibilities for how to play that dragon. Although I'm not suggesting that any of them will necessarily be successful. Uh, one of them is certainly to seek at all costs to build large lines in places that are not highly uh, sensitive or or significantly populated. I think you see uh, multiple developers, including the Champlain-Hudson line and another line that are seeking to bury their lines in the, both the Mohawk and the, and the Hudson rivers. Clearly, there are environmental concerns there when you're dredging those waterways, but I think on balance, the options uh, in that regard are better than, you know, running it through people's backyards. The other part that I think has been important for developers to understand, both those, and especially in the offshore wind space, we've seen this true time and time again, is that engagement with those local communities and making sure that the benefit to those local communities is significant for for their sacrifice to the extent that there is one of, of having a large you know, transmission facility being run through their community, uh, that engagement and compensation when it comes down to it needs to be sufficient in order to in order to ensure that the value is there for that community and that they'll be supportive of the project. I don't know that there's a golden bullet for, for these questions, but certainly good faith early and, and sincere uh, discussion with the developers and the regulators with the local communities can go a long way. Yeah, no, if I could dig into that a little bit more, I'm curious if you could mention how much is your role with these developers? Do you help them with the direct educational or awareness initiatives with the public? Or are, are you more working behind the scenes with the clients and helping them, empowering them to do any sort of that educational awareness initiatives that are needed? I think it's both. You, you know, certainly here at Hodgson Rust, and one of the reasons that I came to this firm is that uh, has a very long and deep history in New York State, including with many of the communities all over central and western New York and even in the North Country, where some of the, the onshore, you know, solar, large-scale solar and, and wind generation projects are being planned. And so when Hodgson Russ is uh, working with these developers, uh, there's sort of instant credibility and, and, and trust from, a, you know, whether it's a town supervisor or somebody who's running an industrial development agency. Uh, they know the firm and it has credibility. So that that helps because a lot of the pathway to a constructive conversation uh, starts with, you know, sitting down at a table, looking somebody in the eye, saying, here's what I want to be able to do. Here's the way we're going to communicate about it. And then actually following through with that. So we we advise you know, not only on the sort of technical issues about how to manage the host community agreements and road use agreements and payment in lieu of taxes agreements and the local and, and state level permitting processes and dealing with the DEC about, you know, wetlands or, or endangered species or whatever it might be. But we also provide a lot of advice, especially, frankly, for developers who are new to the state and, and aren't familiar necessarily with the overlay of, of how the different local government entities work. 
how the different state entities play in the process, just in terms of how to approach the question and how to manage the relationships and, and how to work with the local communities. It's a large part of our job. Now that the ink is dry on the act, where do you think this will end up in the next couple of years? <laughs> well, that is the $100 billion question, I suppose. <laughs> I think that this new office has a very good chance of success. And I say that for, for three reasons. One is, and I'll give him a little bit of a plug, but my former colleague, uh, Hutan Malveni, was recently appointed to be the deputy director of the office. And you won't find anybody in the state who is more expert on these issues and who has a more steady hand with respect to working out the issues that can arise between developers and local communities and state regulators. So that's a huge asset, and I hope that the uh, appointment of the executive director will follow soon, because certainly the development community is clamoring for being able to be able to interact with this new office as soon as possible. The second reason I think it will succeed is because the momentum of renewable energy project development here in New York State is undeniable, and it's not going away. I mean, even through the, the COVID-19 period, which, as everybody knows, has been so acute here in New York State, the appetite for getting projects built is still extremely strong. The economics are just undeniable. Solar, in particular, large-scale solar, continues to get more and more economic every, every year. The, the award sets that continually come out of NYSERDA on a, on a year-to-year basis for renewable energy credits um, the prices keep going down. The megawatt, actually, we're into the gigawatts at this point, keep going up. So there is so much forward momentum to get these projects built that I don't know that this office will have a chance to fail. And the third thing is that the governor of the state of New York, Andrew Cuomo, has taken this issue on over the course of the last six months, five months, really, since he proposed the office in his January budget address. And, you know, once the governor is fully behind the success of a particular initiative, especially this governor, things tend to work out. I'm confident, I think the the development community is confident that when we look back at how this all played out, there will be a lot more projects permitted than than there would have been otherwise, and the state will have uh, a a very well-refined plan for how to get to 70% renewable energy consumption by 2030. Terrific. Well, let's leave it at that. Noah Shaw, I want to thank you for this informative and fun conversation. If any of our listeners want to reach Noah, then you can do so through the Energy Central platform. Thank you, Noah, for your generous time on today's podcast. Thank you, gentlemen. I also want to thank our contributing partners of Energy Central, West Monroe. West Monroe works with the nation's largest utility-owned utilities in their telecommunication, grid modernization, and digital and workforce transformations. From defending a rate case to presenting a business case, West Monroe utilizes a multidisciplinary team that blends utility, operations, and technology expertise, covering topics like aging infrastructure, electric vehicles, AMI, MDM, and ADMS deployments and industry disruptors like DERs and cybersecurity. To ESRI, ESRI is an international supplier of geographic information, GIS software, web GIS, and geodatabase management applications. To Guidehouse, formerly Navigant, is a leading global provider of consulting services to the public and commercial markets with expertise in energy, sustainability, and infrastructure. And to SeaPower. At SeaPower, we help our customers make the decisions today that guide them across the bridge to energy's future. Where will your energy take you? For more information, 
visit cpower.com. Once again, I'm your host, Jason Price. Plug in and stay fully charged in the discussion by hopping into the community at energycentral.com. And see you next time at Energy Central's Power Perspectives podcast. <laughs>